Let's face it, your code is going to have errors, even code written by kick-ass developers such as yourself. When bad things happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron monitoring into a single-use platform, all for way less than you're probably paying now. Honey Badger monitors and sends error alerts in real time with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding in your code, so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. Included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go AWOL or silently fail. Go to honeybadger.io and discover how Star, Josh, and Ben created a 100% bootstrapped monitoring solution. Why is this important? Self-funding means they only answer to you, the developer rather than to a venture capital overlord. Greater Than Code listeners get 30% off for six months. Simply mention Greater Than Code when signing up, and they'll apply a discount to your account, no credit card required. Welcome to episode 195 of Greater Than Code. I am your host, Ray Hendricks, and I'm here with our co-host, John Sowers. Thanks, Ray. And I'm here with our guest, Christina Perla. Christina was born in China, raised in New Jersey, and now is residing in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, she's the CEO, co-founder and of MakeLab, a 3D printing service company. After acquiring a friend's company with her partner, Manny, MakeLab was born and Perla hadn't stopped since. In addition to running the business, she also has us on the board of directors for the global nonprofit Women in 3D Printing. Aside from thinking of engaging ways to activate the local NYC 3D printing community, Christina works with other board members to foster a diverse industry and expand the global reach of women in 3D printing through interviews, events, networking opportunities, and resources. Most recently, Christina appeared on the cover of Entrepreneur Magazine as a result of as a result of Make Lab's response to COVID-19. She's also been featured and quoted in Adweek, TCT, Grit Daily, The Raising, Sway, and more. When she has free time, Christina loves to spend it with her fiancé and their dog, Milo. She enjoys a good, long, strenuous hike anywhere woodsy during the warmer months and prefers to start every day with a good, usually challenging workout. Welcome to the show, Christina. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for having me. So we're going to kick things off with the way we kick things off always, which is by asking you, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? This was an interesting one, but I, I would say the common theme amongst my entire career is my resourcefulness. I don't need to know something beforehand to be able to execute it well. I can figure things out pretty quickly and learn pretty quickly and figure out where to look to learn. Um, I would say that I, I attribute that skill to my college education at Pratt. At Pratt in the industrial design program, you're often tasked with like a lot of your projects consist of not only coming up with a design, not only coming up with the research to back your design and having to prove your design to your classmates and your teacher, your professor, but you also have to figure out a way to make a model of it. And with that coming from high school, you're not really experience with making models. So it's a lot of figuring things out as you go. So uh, I would say that years of doing that <laughs> has made me pretty resourceful in other in other ways um, for starting a business as well. And you're talking about building a physical mock-up of, the, uh, of uh, an item? Yeah, exactly. So an example is like, um, I did uh, this one project. I called it the hamster play table. 
you know, it's not my best work, but it is a good example of how I had to hack it together. I, it was my senior year. I was a little burnt out and I wanted to take a fun spin on one of my final projects. So I decided to make a play table that would fit into like an Ikea catalog or some, or something along those lines, a piece of furniture, but it also functioned as like a habitat for a hamster. And this would be for kids like under seven years old. And so you'd be able to interact with the hamster and draw on directly on the table. And I had to make a table essentially and figure out how to put pre-existing like hamster, you know, those like jungle gyms almost for hamsters, like the old tubes and all the connected. I had to figure out. Yeah. (laughs) I had to figure out how to incorporate that with like an actual table and like make it stable. So that was a bit of a challenge because I'm I'm by no means like a a woodworker. So that was a bit of a learning curve. So it sounds like building out the the physical item in addition to just sort of thinking about how cool it might be is a, an important part of that educational process and, and, and taught you a lot about like the process of industrial design. Yeah, for sure. And then to carry it through even a step further, once you had the model for my portfolio and in order to present it properly, you had to make a presentation out of it. And usually that required like a book of some sort. So we industrial designers were taught to make project books kind of at the end of every single project. So that includes photographing your product or your project, if possible, photograph it in use. So in my case, like find this is going to sound weird, but find a kid. <laughs> I, my, my partner, I have a lot of like nieces and nephews, so that wasn't too difficult. They were happy to do it. But, you know, find a kid and kind of like model it as best as you can. And at the time I did have a hamster, so I brought the hamster to the photo shoot and like the end of the year uh, show where they exhibit all of the student work. And uh, so my hamster was there <laughs> and it kind of stole the show because everyone walked by was like, is that what? What? Is that a real hamster? <laughs> nice. How much of that prepared you for starting a business and, and how how much did you need to learn on the fly and, and be resourceful? I would say that it prepared me maybe like 25% and the rest was learning on the go really quickly. But again, using the hamster table project as an example, I had to learn about you know what tools I needed to paint and finish a table. I need to learn joinery throughout my prac career. I also had to learn how to put a project book together. So that included a little bit of graphic design work. You usually make a website as well. So you you dabble in that. Like we had to quickly execute. And that's very much along the lines of like a founder's journey. What you do when you're starting a business, you just have to do it. You have to do it and hope it, hope it works. And so just knowing where like starting with a simple Google search and then quickly finding the answer to the things that I needed to complete, whether it was making a website or figuring out pricing or anything along those lines, maybe a training manual and figuring out really quickly how to look for examples of how people did that, maybe a book or two, and then quickly digest all of that information and spit it back out. I would say that that's very much like the prep mindset, at least what they taught us in that program. I even learned a little bit of code. <laughs> so was MakeLab the first business you started out of school or did you run through a number of things before you stumbled upon that one? I ran through a few different things. So when I first got out of school, I was working at Converse in the accessories design department. Um, I was there for about like a year and a half. Some of I did start as an intern in my last year of college. So it kind of just continued on post-graduation. 
From there, I went to a wearable tech startup, which, fun fact, is now a repeat client of ours at MakeLab, which is like super fun, full circle. And then after that, I had decided that now if I was going to take a risk and I had this itching, like entrepreneurial feeling, and I, I came to the conclusion, now's the time to take the risk because I'm young. I want to fail fast. So I put in my two weeks and I started to freelance for industrial design and I did product development and prototyping work for clients. And I found clients mainly through Upwork, upwork upwork.com. And then from there, my partner and I, we decided to team up and do it together. So Manny and I were a team and we formed a company out of that called Tangent Design. We don't operate it anymore. And it kind of fizzled out once MakeLab came into the picture. But we did form a name just to cover the both of us and for legal stuff and contracts. And then from there, we threw out the process of having industrial design clients. We needed to prototype often. And so that's when we found a local 3D printing company. We became friends with the owners. And then a year, year and a half later, we ended up acquiring their company when um, they decided they were moving to China. What are some of the things that inspire you today? Like, you know, I guess I'm I'm asking because I have a 3D printer and I also have three kids. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'd love to get more involved in just kind of the 3D printing ecosystem. But it's like there's so many options that you just become paralyzed. So how do you get inspired to print something or to create something or, you know, to solve a problem? A lot of the work that we do, we, a high level description is we're like the Kinkos of 3D printing or like the Staples marketing and design department where you place an order for something. You've already done the creative work, but you need it to become real. You need it either. Well, in the case of Staples, you need it out on paper or a poster board or some sort of graphic. But for us, you need the physical part. So we mainly function. Like a prototype. Yeah, exactly. And so we mainly function as a service for people who need to prototype. So a lot of our conversations with clients start after the point that they've already decided what they're going to print. So in terms of the question of like what inspires us or what inspires me, for me personally, I love being like a creative's right hand and a creative's tool. We like to see it as like we enable creatives and we bridge the gap between them creating like creativity and creation by 3D printing. So that's really what inspires me because I've always, I I was just talking about this yesterday with someone and I really love, you know, aside from from work and business, I I really like to inspire people. When I started MakeLab, I always looked outside for inspiration. So I I always followed a number of business leaders, uh, mostly female, Um, not necessarily in the technical space, but I just really appreciated They're what I classify as like boss moves and it really inspired me and I would follow them on social media and whatnot. And so I really like to be that for someone else. I think for me, I just like to pay it forward. I like to complete the circle and I like to provide value by using my experience. So that's like kind of our mission at MakeLab, right? We're experts in the technical realm. We know our printers, we know the materials, we know what it can do. So let's provide value to our clients by helping them bridge that gap so you don't have that overwhelming feeling of where do I start or like I got a printer now what and then try to look on the forums and it just you know you spiral into this entire like you know next thing you know you're a a day later you're you've gone through all the forums and you're still unsure of like where to start just because there's so much information it's 
so overwhelming. <laughs> so we try to take that off of our clients' hands who just need to really prototype quickly and they don't have time to get into that. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's really fun because we see so many different things come in through, you know, the various ways you can contact us. Some stuff is like straight up engineering, engineering projects. Some stuff is straight up industrial design products. And then we get the experimental stuff, which is really fun. We get a lot of like D&D figurines from the gaming industry, people that want to bring what they're playing with at home on their own. They want to bring it to life. And so we get a ton of those models, which lends it's like a perfect fit for 3D printing. Actually, we sometimes get like 3D scans of people themselves. We'll, We'll get that. Sometimes we get wedding cake toppers. Sometimes we get architectural models of things that are actually going to go into a building. Um, At the end of the day, we get big sculpture installation pieces. It's really fun because we get to touch every single industry. And as an industrial designer, like the one thing that attracted me to that industry was never being bored because uh, usually the the career trajectory for an industrial designer is you work at a firm. And when you work at a firm, you never know what's going to come through the door. And so it's it's cool that I get to do that here, too. Are there projects that your company has said, like, nope, nope, we can't do that? Like, sorry. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. As a business, uh, there is a level of risk involved with mm-hmm. 3D printing. If something won't print and we print, we print it, like, maybe five times, it ends up becoming a little bit more difficult to manage on our end. And then also it strains the relationship with the client because they're like, where's my piece? And oftentimes the pieces that come in that fit that description are um, ones from people that may not know a lot about 3D printing. So there's a level of like not understanding why a print might fail Um, and then us having to explain it. But by that time, the clients are frustrated. So in those situations, we try to analyze risk whenever we can and mitigate it. So we have rejected prints before or we have gone back to the client and been like, you know, this could print as long as you change this, this, and that, then we're good to go. Or we can print it and try it. It's at risk, but we can't reprint it. So we'll try to mitigate the situation rather than just like straight up turning people away. Did you ever run into things that you like without even attempting to print that you just refuse to on say moral ethical grounds? Not really, actually. Not really. I, I'm surprised about that. I thought that we would receive more, especially as the blueprints for 3D printing like ammunition. And, and like weapons became more available. And I think that happened like two, two, three years ago. I expected a lot more of that coming our way. But I think with our brand, I think we just attract like a totally different type of client. And we really attract the creatives rather than um, maybe someone who's tinkering with things on their own. Like they might look at our brand and be like, why would I, why would I use you guys? I have my own printer. But really where we fit in in our client base is, is the creative or industrial designer or brand designer, marketer, or... I want to get into the work you've been doing in New York City. Can you talk a little bit about the, the work you've been doing with uh, Masks for NYC? Yeah, for sure. Basically, when COVID hit, we saw a decline in our business. And we also, at the same time saw the 3D printing community jumping in and getting involved and really offering up all of the tech that the community like had to make face shields. And face shields aren't masks, but in hospitals, they were, they are required and they do offer a good amount of protection. So when COVID hit, there was just like this mass flood 
of requirements for all PPE and then all like hospital resources and medical resources. And it was just so flooded. The system was so flooded that there was really no place to get PPE. If you could find PPE, it was like the prices were jacked up. It wouldn't ship on time. There were just a lot of supply chain and logistical issues with ordering PPE. So a lot of hospitals, a lot of dental offices um, that were still open, and a lot of different communities um, were looking to 3D printing to purchase PPE, as well as government resources, too. Like the EDC, the NYC EDC was looking, was sourcing face shields as well. So we, we kind of just took a half a day. We set up our supply chain. We pivoted and we started, we started making them. It wasn't the most difficult pivot. It was, it's not like there was a lot of setup costs. Um, we just had to source things like the elastic that holds the face shields to your face, uh, the foam that prevents you from, you know, chafing on your forehead. <laughs> And also the clear plastic visor that you see through. So after sourcing those things, it was pretty much go time. Like we can just put 20 on a machine and have that run over the weekend and come back to 20 face shields ready to go pretty much. And then the assembly work wasn't too, too heavy. And we did these made to order. So we didn't carry too much stock either. So we were able to just stay flexible with the needs of the community. It's pretty cool. That you kind of, I, I don't want to say pivoted, but that you kind of like took action like that quickly, right? Yeah. Because I feel like during that time, there was so much craziness that it was like really difficult to think clearly, <laughs> right? Like everything going on at the same time and so much fear. So it was good that you said, hey, like we have these resources, let's spring into action quickly and let's do something about it, right? Um, that's really cool. That was pretty interesting because I totally felt overwhelmed. Like I felt that 100%. Like I couldn't think very clearly. We had to make so many decisions all at once. Like, are we sending our team home? Um, how long are they going to stay home for? What? How does that impact the workflow? Because we're a lab. We have 3D printers. We need people here. So we had mm-hmm. to make the decision to send our team home. And basically Manny and I, we were running the factory. Wow. And so it was just, <laughs> that was crazy and kind of getting used to the idea of all of a sudden like tripling our workload. So not only were we, you know, trying to be at the front of all these changes and be leaders during this crazy time, we were also running a great deal of the hands-on operations. It was really difficult. And honestly, looking back, I think we could have sprung to action a little bit earlier. We got started around like April, the first week of April, but you know, the thought of jumping in and 3D printing PPE that had been on our minds for a week prior. So in my opinion, like looking back, just being hard on myself, like I think, I think we could have probably um, sprung to action a little bit quicker, but in like in the grand scheme of things, it still was pretty quick, but I, you know, we felt that, that pressure 100%. Yeah. And I, and I, and you know, in all fairness, I think April was quick because in April, I was still trying to figure out where my head was at, right? I was like, um, what do I do now? <laughs> what happens? You mean I can't go outside? So, yeah. So kudos to you, though. I mean, like, don't underestimate that that power. I honestly didn't even, like, I was so short-sighted, too. I just didn't even know how long this quarantine would last. So on a personal level, I was just like, you know, the gyms were closed and everything. So I'm like, oh, you know, we'll be back in like a month. It'll be okay. Let me just like, this is my time to like pick out, eat junk food, stressy, like all this stuff. And then like three months later, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not the only one. 
So how did you end up finding like connections to, you know, local businesses and people who, who needed these PPE resources? Like, was there any sort of clearinghouse for those sort of orders or how did you get into that? A lot of it was inbound. We didn't reach out to people. The most that we did was put it on our social media and did an email uh, newsletter blast. And that was pretty much it. Um, and we set up a website. So we set up a, se- a separate website for ordering and also requesting donations. Halfway, like two weeks into it, we set up a GoFundMe and we set up a, a donation request form so that we can just donate shields. A hospitals acquiring funds. I'm not sure what the process is like, but we just wanted to be ready. We didn't want the money part to slow things down. So we, that's why we created the dona- donation so we can just do it. But in the beginning, a lot of people actually came to us. We had clients that worked with us prior to COVID that either had connections to the medical community or had friends in the medical community. And they so they had a lot of contacts. And so they would organize their own donation funds. And then they would take our pricing into consideration. So if it's $9.25 per shield, how much money do I need to donate 50 shields? And they would make that their goal. So as the money would come in on their own donations, they would just contract it out to us. And then we deliver it right to their destination. So we did that for a few clients, which was really cool because that's just like so seeing the community like spring to action like that was so inspiring. But then also we had a lot of dental offices need face shields because dentists in their everyday work, they they use face shields quite often. And so I think with the shortages, they just had nowhere else to go. So they they went 3D, the 3D printing route. Diversified Tech is for people like me who are underrepresented in tech. It's a central place where we can find scholarships, events, speaking opportunities, and jobs. It is also for all of us in the tech industry who want to make it a welcoming and inclusive place. Companies can learn about diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as connect with candidates looking for jobs. Allies can also support and advocate for underrepresented people in tech. Make sure to join their newsletter at diversifytech.co. What would you say to other women in design and tech and just, you know, any other industry unrelated or related that want to follow a similar path, right? And maybe start their own business from their apartment, right? And then and then end up in a big factory like you and your co-founder are today. If you're a designer engineer and you want to start your own business, you know how to do the work really, really well. I feel like business owners that come from like talent backgrounds struggle with is connecting with the customer and running the business. So I would say, since you know how to do the work, get your process down, but focus on the things that you don't know and take some time so you can at least figure out how to like do things like manage a team. That's really hard, (laughs) you know, or do things like, the marketing side of identifying your customer and how to target them, how to reach them, how to talk to them. And that should be innate knowledge being that, you know, if you are like a technical co-founder or technical founder or come from a design background, you, you are a customer of your own product, but sometimes it's, it can be difficult or it takes a little bit more thought and work put into it to connect the dots and be like, Oh, this is what got me in the door. So let me then trace back and do the same thing for other people and figure out a system behind it. And so really connecting those dots, I think, are extremely important and just staying close to your customer. That's like my one piece of advice. That's excellent. Thank you for sharing that. 
And you talked about wanting to be a, a role model for uh, other women starting businesses, and, and you're definitely involved in the Women in 3D Printing uh, organization. So talk a little bit about what's involved there and, and how those two relate. Yeah. So Women in 3D Printing, I got involved in probably like close to a year after Make Lab started, pretty much. I was at a trade show. I felt so uncomfortable at that trade show. It was, it was a really big one in the industry. It was, it's called Rapid. And I just had imposter syndrome like to the max. And so I found out through a connection about a woman in 3D printing happy hour that was happening like that day. And so I was really tired from walking around in the trade show all day. But I forced myself to go. And I ended up meeting the founder of Woman in 3D Printing. And that's when I was like, can I do this, but in New York. And that's when they had started to develop their ambassador, their local chapter and ambassador program as well. So she said, yes, we got to talking and that's how it started. So basically my role as ambassador is to gather the local community, gather and activate all in support of the mission. And so with that, we have our monthly happy hours. We have a lot of freedom that we can, we can propose event ideas. And so one thing that I did do pre COVID was an event called a conversation with I only got it was supposed to be a quarterly event three or four times a year I would put this on and I only got to two before COVID hit but I would basically have be like on the other side of this situation right now and I'd be the interviewer interviewing someone on stage for like 30 40 minutes and then prior to that I would have four speakers give lightning talks that were just seven minute overviews all relevant to the theme of the event so the first event was called like being a pioneer. And so I interviewed Liz Hillweiker, who was formerly at Coach, and she ran their 3D printing department there. Now she's at Formlabs, who is a printer manufacturer. And then the second event was all about community. And that's where I interviewed my friend Diana Verdugo. She is the partnerships and community lead over at Formlabs. I didn't mean and intend for this to be like all Formlabs, but those two events really Aside from the monthly happy hours, I wanted to put something on that was a little bit more educational and, and inspirational and gave like all the attendees something to talk about during the networking phase. Sometimes happy hours can be a little awkward. I feel awkward going to happy hours unless I'm the host because then I know what's going on and I understand what the point is, but I feel really uncomfortable at networking events. So something like uh, a guest speaking, guest speaker event kind of disarms people a little bit more and it, it tends to be a little bit more productive. So I wanted to, to put on something a little bit more. Plus one to everything she just said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've always found that working is easier at a conference because you can always open up with the like, well, what was your favorite talk today? And then boom, you're already in a conversation. Exactly. You already have the entire, you, you all sat through the presentations together. So it's really easy to pick up. Whereas a happy hour, it's like you're coming in after work and you're like, you know, Hi. <laughs> you know, it's just a little awkward. What have you learned about organizing a, a community of like that? You know, what worked, what what didn't work, maybe what was surprising? I find that a lot of people go to community events to promote their own businesses, but the more you can stray away from that and kind of just see each other and see other attendees and audience members as humans and finding a common thread to connect with maybe even outside of the work starting there is always for me and it, like looking back in my experience has proven to be like really great industry friends, just connecting on something else. We don't have to talk about the work at first. Cause like, obviously that's why we're all here, but like, who are you as a person? Who are you as a human? 
Like, what do you like to do out? What are your hobbies? You know, what, and then, and then getting to the work or including that in some, in some capacity during the night tends to strengthen those relationships and also going into any networking or industry event thinking, okay, I brought myself here. I got through the door. Let me make at least one connection tonight, at least one. So it's worth it for everyone. Networking events are so awkward unless you like know familiar faces. I know for me personally, they're really difficult because, um, or it can be difficult for me because I actually like to cultivate like relationships organically. And in these network event, networking events, it feels kind of forced. Like, oh, I have to kind of connect with one person. It's like, uh, I don't know. What about if I'm not in the mood? Or I just want to kind of chill and I just want it to be like more organic. And I feel the same way. In November, Manny and I, we went to an event together. And when you go alone, sometimes it's better because you're kind of forced to interact with someone else. Whereas if you are if you go with someone you already know, it's like, let me just stick around this person. But one thing we did was we split up, especially when they were serving food. And I, I realized I tend to strike conversations on the food line. <laughs> it, it just disarms me and other people a little bit more and a little bit better. It's just a little bit more casual. It's without that pressure. So I just realized just talking about it now that I tend to stick around the food and the beverages. And, food brings and that's like, people together. Exactly. <laughs> the kitchen at the party is always the, the busiest place. It really is. And you get so much exposure. Like you see everyone. That's kind of a good tactic now that I'm thinking about it. I'm just going to do it purposefully now. <laughs> we need to pin that tactic. That's so true because then you could like ask questions. It's a good like icebreaker. Like, oh, hmm, what what wine is that? Or what are you drinking? Or is that good? Oh, let me try it. You know, and then, hey, you know, how are you, how are you doing this evening or whatever? And like, I don't know, just try up a conversation that seems a little bit more natural. Yeah, exactly. I remember I was at a holiday party and I really knew no one. But, well, I knew a lot of people, but I hadn't met a lot of people. So I was in that place of like, do I approach them and kind of fangirl a little bit or like, do I just like, what do I do? And so I felt really awkward. And so I, I actually ended up just staying by the food because I was also a little hungry. And then that's how I ended up like talking to a lot of different people because we were talking about the food. They were serving oysters. And so we were talking about like, do you like oysters? And just, you know, casual conversation that really wasn't productive. But then I was like, oh, by the way, what what do you do? Why are you here? <laughs> what brought you here? And then so from there, it would just it would just span into a lot like more productive of a conversation. So I have another question for you as far as make lab, like do you outside of uh, kind of being a service and, and providing prototyping and um, being customer facing, do you, and outside of like networking events that you personally host, do you also do like community based learning events, uh, whether at your facility or externally in partnership with other companies here in New York? I would like to do more of that. Like I would like to co-host or like even sponsor more, but it, it's really difficult. It just gets really busy when you're trying to like build your own company. Mm -hmm. So I found that sometimes I'll like overcommit and then I'll get stressed out because I'm, I want to do everything. I want to say yes to everything, but I just physically cannot. Like there's just not enough time in this world. But I do like to attend other events too. I've attended like the Girl Boss Rally. I've attended, there was this one I just attended the other day. It was virtual. It's called Funders and Founders. And so Make Lab is going for a round of, of funding this year and we're starting to pitch. And so for me, diving into that community that's really supportive and where I can learn from others 
is really important. And that's one of the ways that I kind of start to learn about something new. Like I have no idea how this world works. I've never done this before. So I do try to make it out to things that especially where like I need to learn and I try to always expose myself. I feel like as a founder, it's really easy to be very much in your bubble of your day to day and just be like, oh, like I'm going home. I just want to relax. I don't want to think about anything. I need to like recover and prepare for the next day. But I feel like falling into that habit like too often can be really detrimental, not only for you and your growth as a founder, but also for your team. Part of our responsibility is to look ahead, but it's really difficult to look ahead if you're not bringing new things into your your world, into your bubble. So I, I always try to like expand a little bit and meet other people that aren't in this industry and just cross connect, cross collaborate. Yeah, I agree. I think that's important as well. But yeah, I mean, juggling a lot. Definitely don't overcommit. <laughs> Overcommitment equals burnout. <laughs> burnout yeah. is not fun. <laughs> yeah. I definitely did that. I would say a lot more in my first year, first one or two years. Um, and that's when we made a really big pivot. We just tried to span across like different services, I guess, under the realm of 3D printing. Um, but it, we, we eventually shut the other attempts down and just stuck with the 3D printing service because we, we had simply overcommitted. It was so difficult to manage. And Manny and I, we st- ended up like filling in a lot of gaps. So it meant that, that it took away our ability to think ahead and think forward. Instead, we were head underwater, not head above water. And so we eventually shut that down, even though it was like a good source of income, especially for a startup. It was great, but there was no long-term goal there. Well, I think that's good foresight right there, right? Like you were able to say, hmm, we need to like let go of this to in order to focus better on this. So um, yeah, I yeah. feel like in small business and startups too, you can either go one of two ways. You can give yourself like a really nice life and have a small team and stay like a small business for a really long time, which a lot of people enjoy. And honestly, sounds a little bit less stressful. Or you can go the route of really wanting to build a brand and scale. And so at that time that we pivoted and shut shut the other two streams of revenue down and services down, that's when we really defined what we wanted. And that's why it's really important to stay connected to your one, three, five, ten year goals. Tell me about how you went about figuring out what things you were really there for versus what things you thought you might be there for or what you should be there for uh, so that you could get that focus. Yeah. So to go a little more into detail, basically two years ago, we had a full functioning finishing shop. So we would 3D print things and then we would sand them, paint them, finish them so that they didn't look 3D printed. They looked like plastic, like beautiful, glossy, shiny, nice colored plastic and sometimes multicolored. And while those projects excited us, I noticed a trend in myself personally, as I had to jump in or as I had to manage the team that was doing it, I just felt like I would get a little frustrated and I I would feel, have this feeling of like, I wasn't moving fast enough. Like I have to go back to the shop to finish this, but I need to do other things. And then I kept hitting this wall of like, where should I put my time? And for me, when I, I can recognize patterns pretty easily, so especially emotional patterns, and that's like what I like to call like the gut feeling. But once I noticed I was getting frustrated at the process of making money, I'm like, that's a problem. (laughs) Like I shouldn't be frustrated when we're making, we're bringing in revenue. And so that kind of indicated to me that there was a problem with the process or no, not that there was a problem with the process, but I had a problem with the process. 
And it wasn't my process. And it wasn't the process that I wanted to grow and scale. And I hit I hit way too many walls to be able to to continue on that path and really think deeper, dig deeper, and execute well. So when it came to either a lot of like manual hands-on work versus something where you can send it to the printer multiple times and it just kind of does it and you revisit the printer later and take it off the machine, that was just a much more scalable business. And there were a lot more factors that we could predict in the long run. Like we can predict inventory, we can project sales, like we could identify the customers. So it's just we had a lot more insight and knowledge to that side of the business where the other side of the business, it was just so unpredictable. Like you can spend five hours on something or you can spend 15 hours on something. But that variable is like too difficult to handle while trying to scale a business. Don is our resident expert on recognizing emotions. <laughs> How so? So I, I have a, um, a talk that I give at tech conferences called uh, Hacking Your Emotional API. So I use the, the API metaphor from code to talk about like if your emotions were like API responses that you that you return in response to things that happen to you, like it can help sort of just understand something that's not really that understandable. So I, I was noticing like when you were talking about that, that you you were paying attention to the parts of the business that you were enjoying versus not enjoying. And I think that's that's a really useful thing to be able to notice. Like sometimes you think, oh, every, this, is, this is just what work is like. Work always sucks. I don't like work, blah, 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 right? You could do that. And then you'd be ignoring that valuable source of data about, well, if I'm not enjoying this, either we shouldn't do it or we should find a way to outsource it or like just find a way to have me not be doing this uh, because there are these other things that I am enjoying. So I think that's like being in touch with that is, again, a good business skill. Yeah, I feel like it's so necessary as a founder. And like, as you were talking, I was thinking through, I was like, Oh, you know what, that's, that's actually really true. I didn't, I didn't think of that as a business skill before. But being really in touch totally is because the way I see it is I left uh, working for someone else to work for myself because I didn't enjoy it. And we spend most of our awake hours working, like, it's 40 plus hours a week working. If you don't enjoy that, then what's the point? To really simmer it down, like that's like where I'm operating from. Like I think that everyone should enjoy their work. Otherwise, it's just I've seen so many people not enjoy it. I don't understand how you can keep doing that because then then you run into walls and roadblocks a lot quicker. You stop questioning what you can change and you eventually lose like your own power, you know, to be able to question things and, and be like, why do we do things this way? It would be better if we did things that way. That's a power, but you have to feed it. And by feeding it, you have to be happy in order to do that. You can't you can't operate like that from a pissed off standpoint. You have to be in a good state of mind. And as a founder, you just need to be able to recognize those things really quickly. So it it's better for everyone and is responsible. It's more responsible if you can be in touch with your emotions. I think. Yeah, I think fear yeah. has a lot to do with that too. And people realize that not too late, but just like instead of realizing it sooner, they realize it later. And, you know, by that time you have responsibility and, or some people have responsibilities and, and families and, um, bills and commitments. And it's like, you're kind of too deep in and that brings a whole other set of problems. Right. So even if you're not happy, you kind of like, just, I don't know, reluctantly say, well, you know, it's just a job and I just have to like get through it. And you're right, you end up living a life of misery, but you, a lot of people, a lot of people feel stuck, right? So it's a matter of like, 
hey, how do you get that power back? And, you know, one way is like looking at other people that have done it and have moved past the fear. And that, you know, a lot of times inspires people to kind of like take that leap of faith. But um, yeah, I know a lot of people that are not happy, but they uh, have to work. Yeah. You know, it's tough. Change is tough, especially when you when you're not just living for yourself, right? And you have to support a family, you have to support your kids, or even your lifestyle if you are single. It's just always tough to rock the boat per se, you know, and take that risk. It it is a big risk. It is something new, and it's also uncomfortable because if you're changing up your lifestyle, you probably have to start from a lower level and relearn a few things, and that can bring on a level of discomfort. And especially after you've built up your career to a certain point and you're like, I've got this, I've got this to be able to be able to, you know, say, let me start over and let me be the new guy again. You know, that definitely takes a a bit of courage and it's a little, not a little, it's very intimidating. Yeah, it it opens it up to that that same like attack of imposter syndrome that, that you probably had earlier in your career. And then you like, I mean, I've had that, too, when I'm switching frameworks or learning a new language. You're like, wait, I thought I was good at this stuff. Maybe I was just lying to myself or like, what is it? And then, like, thankfully, I can look back. and was like, wait, no, I've, I've, I've actually done a lot of stuff. So this is just like this is just a feel and like and let it go. But, yeah, it, it's hard to do that. And especially in the in the tech field, too, like if I were to keep pushing forward in this field and I didn't like it and it was just a straight up 3D printing service, I think that would take the human aspect out of what we do, which is what sets us apart. So we would just be another like basically a 3D printing factory and that's it. You can forget about the support. You can forget about the workplace culture. You can forget about the environment. You can forget about your relationship with your teammates and it would just be a factory. But I feel like being able to bring that to tech humanizes it. And I see that in a few companies. And then I see that I see it not being implemented in others. And it's directly related to the founder's uh, emotional state at that time. It really is. And I feel like the, like when you were talking about being stressed out and doing things you don't enjoy and, and over committing and being on the edge of burnout, like that's that's always going to impact your creativity and it's sort of self-perpetuating because you you stop seeing those creative solutions to the problems that you're currently dealing with and especially as a founder you need that creativity exactly you need to constantly be iterating on your own product and constantly be slightly unhappy to the point where it inspires you and you might be a little delusional but you know that's part of it (laughs) so i want to i want to really like kind of like uh drill down on that a little bit more um not to belabor the point but just to understand if you've reached that point, right? For folks who are listening and and say, damn, you know, I'm there, I'm burnt out. I'm not inspired. Um, I really want to get my creative juices back. How do they do it? Like, what is the first step? Like, how do you move past that point in your life and get those creative juices flowing again? Right? Right. I feel like there's a few different ways. I've definitely felt that before. And so what I do is either I step away for a minute because sometimes stepping away from the problem enables you to see the, the entire picture. And as a founder, you can probably you probably have the capability to do that. It's just a change of environment that's needed to spark that change. Another thing that I like to do is talk to other people. And I also love doing interviews and I love like helping other people. And so that brings me back to my why. And when I go back to my why, that's when I find I can do the most. When I feel really feel connected to why I'm doing something, I can just go on forever. 
probably not good because I might reach burnout again, but it gets me started. Anything that can bring you back to your why, whether it's stepping away or stepping to the side, I would say. I love that. Thank you for that. (laughs) Yeah, I think we all need those reminders, you know, I mean, especially during the time of during this time, right, Uh, where people are facing all these different issues, right, right? whether it's work and uh, life, kids, you know, school issues and just um, changes, right? Like working from home for some people has been super impactful, not in a positive way. And so I think that it really gives us time to like gain new perspective on like living the life that you want to live today, not tomorrow um, and how important it is. So yeah, I, I think that those reminders are, are important. And it's also good to note that you can prevent like those stages of burnout too, by reconnecting with your why, even when you don't need to. So we just had a lot of change at Make Lab. We just moved um, into a space that's like four and a half times larger than like what we were operating at, which was basically like a 200 something square foot room, which was insane. And um, we had a few changes in team and just this new post-COVID world getting used to, it. I just started to kind of feel those changes, whereas before I was just plowing through it and just trying to get through and, and you know stay strong for everyone and lead the company into good new territory, I guess. But at every change in your business or every change in your career even, it's really good to have those moments of self-reflection. So even if, you, if you're not at burnout, regularly going to events or going to places where you can connect with someone else that's maybe not in your bubble or like just find ways to connect to your why is really important because you have to redefine that at every single stage and every single change. And I feel like you may not think you need it, but it's so necessary because it can easily escape you. <laughs> Agree. I'd like to talk a little bit about, you mentioned before we got started that you are planning on keeping some amount of your your revenue to devote to like responding to current events. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? One of the beauties about 3D printing is that you can print anything. If you have a digital file, you can print anything. So I think the whole global pandemic situation and all the effects that we all saw and monitored super closely and all the very interesting things that came out of it kind of showed that 3D printing really does have a spot in emergency situations because we can make anything. It's a perfect scenario and use case for 3D printing too because PLA plastic won't last forever. But if you're using it as a stopgap solution for something else, like if reusable PPE and face shields will last 30 days as opposed to the normal 60 days, that still provides a good use case for 3D printing PPE. And I think that can be applied across other future scenarios as well. So another thing that we started printing during the during the pandemic and during quarantine, well, we're still in a pandemic, was custom fit mask fitters. There's an app called Bellis 3D, and there are a few other companies doing things similar, but basically it uses your iPhone 10 or higher and the face ID feature to 3D scan your face. And then from there, it would generate like a mask fitter. So then you can turn a surgical mask into something that was a little bit more safe. So it's basically improve the seal around where there would normally be gaps in your surgical mask, which are really cheap to acquire. So the thought behind this was pay a little bit more for the mask fitter, pay a little bit less for the mask itself. And so that was really interesting because that wasn't only a supply chain thing. That was a customized scalable solution. 
And so I, it's so interesting to see how we as an industry can do these things. And so I just want to be ready for anything. So we just want to keep that on our minds so we can dedicate a portion of our resources when we need to step up and jump in. And during quarantine, we did allocate like 75% of our machines to manufacturing PPE. It was it was crazy. We had so much PPE like everywhere just because there was such a high demand. But during those times, just knowing in the back of our head, like, okay, when something goes down, we'll dedicate X amount to this. It helps us plan a little bit better and it takes away that shock value for when something does happen. So it's just something that we said to ourselves moving forward. Yeah, it's really interesting because the the value of 3D printing comes from the variety that it enables. You know, if you were going to build, you know, if you were going to manufacture the same thing over and over again, custom tooling would would have a, a lower unit cost, right? But if you're a widget manufacturer, then you can't just switch to make masks overnight. Right, right. Having the ability to just like pivot real quick without, I mean, it, it really wasn't too big of an investment to switch over to PPE temporarily. You know, because the biggest investment in making PPE would be the plastic headband portion and the bottom headband portion. So being able to print that on demand using our already existing supply chain and most of our business is we print different parts every single day. Every single part that goes on the printer is different from what was previously on there. It's really falls right in line with what we do as a service bureau. Yeah, if. You know, I, I suppose if you're a 3D printer, you, you have to seek out variety because that if you're not, then you're not taking advantage of what's unique about 3D printing. Exactly. Exactly. I guess my other question is, so is the plan to like withhold like an, uh, like an emergency fund or like how, how is this like operationalized? Because we're able to allocate machines so quickly, it's not much beyond just planning for it and not even like resource allocation. It's just like knowing that you can load up a bunch of material on the machines and go like there really isn't much prep work. Most of the time, just in our daily operations, we have a lot of stock for materials. So we're ready to go at any given point. And like I said, I think the PVE getting up and running um, for a small amount was about like $1,000 to $1,500. So it wasn't even that big of an investment. It was just a matter of setting it up and putting like having enough space in the shop to like have different stations. Like here's an assembly station. Here's our, you know, here's where all of our raw materials are and just staying organized. That was really it. You're the expert on 3D printing. So probably you've spent more time thinking about this, but it seems like this sort of thing makes 3D printing like categorically different from traditional manufacturing. You know, where in traditional manufacturing, you would need to source specific parts or specific things. In 3D printing, you source sort of like the universal material, right? And then you would translate that into whatever form you need. So like the inventory you keep on hand is different. You don't have to figure out like, well, how many of this do I need versus how many of this? Because it's just like, you know, there are different types of filament or whatever, but there's just one thing. Exactly. It's like, it was such an easy pivot. You know, I, I hate to oversimplify it, but like it was pretty simple logistically for us, at least. I mean, if I, if we were a printer manufacturer, it might be a little different. We might not carry as much filament on hand, but I would say the hardest part of this was sourcing the clear plastic visor because that was out of stock on the entire East Coast. So what we did was we got creative and we used Avery plastic binder uh, dividers clear and we just cut off the tabs. 
And as a stopgap solution, because it is a temporary solution, there isn't really a need to make this last forever. It was a stopgap solution. So when demand is so high, it leaves some flexibility to be a little creative and crafty. Of course, like there were craftier solutions. I'm not going to like degrade what we did um, in quality, but it was like, you know, you can go to Staples and buy, you know, Avery Clear plastic binder dividers and just cut off the tabs or not and use that. It was it was really that simple. And it was really the the community of makers that really put the file together that enabled this to happen. So that's another point. It was it was the file, right? But most um, companies that are able to 3D print also have resources or know themselves um, how to 3D model. So in terms of what to print and how to optimize, that's, you know, give it two iterations and you're, you're good to go. It was such a simple, like we didn't have to set up molds. We didn't have to set up jigs. There wasn't too much support removal. We didn't have to cut away material. Like it was pretty simple. Off the printer, you detach your stack of shields and you're good to go. I'm kind of thinking about an analogy to software prototyping, where these are like the only two situations where the prototype really is the thing that goes to production. So in software, oftentimes you'll implement some like simple and complete version of a bigger product as a prototype to sort of get an idea of how things work. And the, the received wisdom is that you don't ship this thing to customers, that you use it internally to test things out, and then you put it aside and you build the real thing properly. But what happens in almost all cases is that prototype then gets shipped to production and then keeps getting like added onto. Sure. And like you don't ship prototype cars to production, you know? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird thing to do. Well, only if it's a concept car, right? Because those are forever prototypes. I guess all software is is concept car-like in a way. <laughs> yeah, I that's something that I've we're like venturing into that into that world a little bit more as we're scaling. We recognize the need and the beauty of pairing hardware and software together to make the perfect product or the perfect service or the perfect workflow. If there is even such a perfect thing, but you know, that that's the vision, right? Yeah. No software is perfect. That's what I'm learning. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> it's always iterating. You're you're always there's always bugs. There's always things that could be done better. You're always going back to the drawing board. It occurred to me while we were talking, this is probably something you realized years ago, but 3D printing is sort of like the ideal implementation of, of lean manufacturing. You know, you keep no inventory on hand, everything is pull based. Yeah. There are quite a few businesses that are formed um, off of using the technology to supply and manufacture their own products online. So if you look on Etsy, for example, there's a big market for 3D printed like desktop items and planters even. All those companies and all those brands and all those businesses, they don't carry stock. It's all made to order because you can fulfill an order within a day. Again, depending on how you're set up, that's a logistical problem, but you know, very, very high level, you can fulfill things same day using 3D printing, depending on how large the file is, how long it takes to print, if there's any post-processing needed, but it's definitely doable. And so it kind of does transform e-commerce a little bit. There's a big business in cookie cutters too, 3D printing custom cookie cutters. That's a business that, you know, where you're constantly iterating, making new shapes, uh, making new geometries. And those files are so easy and light to print that it just makes it a very attractive business to get into and a lot of people do maybe this is a question that's only interesting to me but i'm gonna i'm gonna ask it anyway 
have you worked with like larger companies, more traditional manufacturing pipelines to like build a specific part of the pipeline and like 3D printed? Absolutely. Kind of. Again, 3D printing is plastic, so it doesn't always make it to the end use product, which is something that I think the industry is evolving to, but not there yet. It needs some work. Um, there is metal printing. That's another note. But one of our clients, for example, is Pros. Pros is a custom hair care product where you fill out your online questionnaire and you get in the mail like custom shampoo and conditioner and maybe a hair mask specifically just for your hair based on your desires. And so with that, each bottle is custom labeled. So they've been a longtime client of ours since like 2017 or 2018. And so they order from time and time again, like custom jigs to help apply that label. But it's it's things like that where 3D printing is really useful because if they change their labels a little bit, they need to change their jigs and they need to change their like their manufacturing jigs. So you can go injection molded and get that injection molded. But like there's a big setup cost for that. So 3D printing, if you only need 100, for example, you might as well go 3D printed. It might be a little bit more costly than if you were to injection mold it or injection mold like 10,000 units. But being that you need such a small volume, that's where it really plays into its strengths. But yeah, totally. Manufacturing jigs are definitely a thing. I think Ashley Furniture uses Formlabs. They just did a case study on it, I think, last year. They used Formlabs parts for various jigs and various tooling because otherwise they would have to get that molded and get that made to make their product. So the cost can be really high, but if they only need five, they can 3D yeah, print it. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated in, in the meta-ness of building the tools that build the tools. Me really too. Cool. <laughs> That's something I learned in my Pratt days is like, you know, if, you, if you're doing something multiple times or you need to align something right, you need to make a tool to help you make the product. I think I picked up a book at a used bookstore called like The Art of Jigs or something, and it was wonderful. So for those of us that don't have the clearest concept of what a jig is, can you uh, explain a little bit more? Gotcha. Okay, so say, let's use the example of pros again. So say you have a round bottle and you need to put two labels on it, one on the top and one on the bottom, and you need to do 100 how are you going to place that perfectly centered every single time so that you represent the, ba- the brand well in the product? If it's all crooked and stuff, it might just decrease the value of your brand. So um, in cases like that, you need something where you don't have to figure out alignment and hover over the product and take a long time. Jigs are, are tools that make your job easier, but then also more efficient and a little bit more perfect, to, so to speak. So a jig in that case would help you would be um, like a like a piece of material, or it could be 3D printed, it could be made out of wood, it can even be a sticker just for visual alignment, but it's a tool to help you make something else. So in this case, it would just help you place these things faster and easier with less mistakes. Okay, so perhaps a meta, uh, an, an example might be like when you put a screen protector on your iPhone, they give you a plastic jig that helps you align it on the screen so that you just you don't always get it off to the side or whatever. Exactly. That's a perfect example. <laughs> cool. Now I know the name for that thing. Yeah, I, I actually didn't know even during my Pratt days. It wasn't until Manny like explained what it was. That I was like, oh, yeah, those things. I never knew what to call it. I would call it a thingamajig or something. Whoa. <laughs> That's funny. Thingamajig has the word jig in it. But yeah, I, I didn't like realize the name for a while either i just recently have been really hell-bent on like the people side of tech and how important it is to 
address the humans behind the tech, which plays into, you know, what Ray and you were saying earlier before we started recording. It's just so important and sometimes is overlooked, but that really determines the success of your business really is being able to connect with others and the, t- and the, the people side, whether it's a customer or your team, it's everything. And I just feel like sometimes it's very overlooked. So it's great that you guys are really hitting on that point. Yeah, actually, I'd like to talk about that a little bit more if we could. So one of the ideas from resilience engineering is that the way we adapt to challenges is that we share people share their capacity to adapt with each other. The epitome of this is probably uh, like Mr. Rogers is look for the helpers, you know. So my question is, what have you learned from doing this work? you know, in in the COVID world about connecting with your local community, about figuring out how to how to help people. People make things move. The only reason why we were to implement so fast was because we connected with people. A step before the connecting is the intent to connect. And that can be hard for in times of uncertainty because I think one of the strengths of a good leader is being able to be vulnerable and say, hey, this is what I don't know. Let's put our heads together. Let's go to the, let's go back to the drawing board a little bit. Let's, let's iterate on this together. I can't do it by myself because no one can do it by themselves. But a lot of people I feel like don't like to be put themselves in that vulnerable place where you kind of have to go back a few steps. So first step is doing that is, is just, you know, saying, Hey, I don't know. I'm saying on top of this suggestions, welcome. And kind of embracing that the times of uncertainty together, but then just being able to put that also out into the world. You never know what you're going to get back. One of the biggest things I learned, I think in 2019, I was super shy. Like I am super shy. Eh, Not as much anymore. I used to be very, very, very shy. I would second guess every Instagram post I put out there, every LinkedIn post I put out there for fear of like being judged in some sort of capacity. But then I realized who cares? Because If I don't put it out there, no one's going to know what I'm doing and no one can jump in and add to it. And then I can't do that for other people. If I'm so afraid of putting it out there and cultivating that community, then I'm going to be an island and I'm going to silo myself for the rest of time. So I think a big part is, is embracing that discomfort a little bit and experience it emotionally, get it out, but then like work past it, lean into it and really try to problem solve. Because, yeah, if it wasn't for our community and our client responses to our email newsletters about pivoting to do like PPE, I don't think that we would have been able to make as much. Like our community is really what made that move. We only supplied it. We didn't create the demand. The demand was just there. We just had to activate it. That's good advice. I sometimes still feel that way. Like, oh, I really want to say this. Do I really want to put this out into the world? You know, is there value? You know, is it going to be controversial? Do I really want to argue? <laughs> yeah, I found that like the times that I was the most uncomfortable with putting something out there were the were the most fruitful times, though, because most likely if I was feeling it, some at least one other person would feel the same way. And then you connect over it. And most likely that other person wants to talk about it, too. So if you can connect over it and then you kind of talk about it together, even if you really hadn't talked to this person before. Um, it's an opportunity to connect, to grow and cultivate a relationship, gain a follower, gain a friend, gain a two-way support system, and something will come out of that. It will. It just has to. Yeah, I think you, you 
you sort of touched on a really good point, something I've noticed a lot in my life recently, which is that it's hard to be the first person to, to step out and, and say the thing or to bring up a topic or, or even just express what it is you're dealing with. But like that, that is like the ultimate invitation to other people to connect with you and just sort of saying, sitting home alone, thinking I'm really lonely, like only gets you so far. Like you can't just assume everyone else is just going to drive by and reach out and make a connection to you. It, it, it has to start with you. And it's certainly a hard thing to do. I'm not going to say that it's not a, a challenge, but like you said, sitting with that discomfort and really feeling it and saying, well, this is really uncomfortable, but I'm going to do it anyway, um, is, is a great place to start from. Yeah. I, I like the way, the way that you said it, it starts with you and it's an invitation. Those times are invitations for something different. I would like to point out, uh, not really for anyone here, but more for our listeners, that not everyone has the same experience when they try to do that. Actually, I think one of the problems is that often the best way to lead is to cultivate ex you know, expertise in other people. But there are people in society, I'm thinking mostly about black people and women, who have to continuously demonstrate their own competence. And this actually gets in the way, in addition to being shitty for them, which is the, the first problem, there's a secondary problem, which is that this gets in the way of, of actually being like leading other people. I agree. I agree. It's easy to do and practice this once you've already done it and you've gained some clout, I guess is the word, like in, in your community or on a social media platform. But to get started is, is the hardest thing. So in that regards, I would say... You're not completely alone, though. There's got to be someone out there that feels the same way that you do. And just even having a bouncing board for your emotions, be like, oh, shit, yeah, I feel that way, too. It gives you a lot of confidence. And so I feel like it starts with just that first step, even if it's in private, even if it's not like public, just in some form connecting it and, and, and getting out of the mindset like I'm alone in this. That's the most harm I think that you could do as a person to yourself is to get into the habit of thinking that like I'm alone. I'm the only one. It's almost as if there's a reason that a global profit nonprofit like women in 3D printing would exist. <laughs> Full circle. Yes. <laughs> but touching on another point that you said earlier, it is really tough because like I, I too sometimes feel like I have to keep on demonstrating you know, I'm always starting from square one and that's just pretty shitty. And it, it makes it harder to like stand up to that and be like, I'm going to keep doing this. But the only other option is to get into that negative mindset. Right. So the way I see it is like, it's really shitty, but like if someone doesn't do it, who is? And getting into that mindset, maybe this could be super naive, but I'm also just unusually optimistic about things. Most of the time, if at least five people who are in that position can push through and be strong for others, hopefully it inspi inspires five more people per those five people. Now you have five times five, 25, um, and then so on and so forth. I just feel like things are pretty infectious. And again, this is insanely optimistic. And, you know, like that's just the way I like to think about things and what keeps me going. But I have to think like that. Otherwise, what's the point? You know, when does the cycle stop? Yeah, great note to end. The <laughs> no, this, this is great. I agree. Yeah, 
there's a difference between acknowledging the situation and being pessimistic. And there's a difference between believing that things can be better and being naive, I think. Yeah. And, and Christine, I think you made a, a good point about how there are, there, there are varying degrees of publicity with which, in which you can do this. And so for the people for whom it's much riskier to be vulnerable in public or to admit ignorance or not be like the super on top of everything, like finding those smaller communities, like for example, women in 3d printing where they can find support and can make those bids for connection without having as much risk associated, I think is, is powerful. And I think too, even going a, a step smaller, you can even start with your own friends and family, just having those conversations and exercising that muscle. I feel like a lot of this is about exercising the muscle, just getting uncomfortable in a place where you normally feel safe might be a good place to start as well. Like I've done that too. Like I brought up the sociopolitical climate with friends and people I went to high school with. And it was like scary because we hadn't really talked about it that seriously before, or I I didn't really put myself on the front line of one side. So that was intimidating, but doing it, I grew from it, even if it was just within my very, very small circle. So we've gone to the time on every show where we go into reflections, which is each of us are going to talk about the things that struck us about the um, discussion we've had today and maybe the takeaways, things we're going to think about more. For me, it's definitely going to be that idea of being in touch with your feelings as a business skill. It was kind of funny. I hadn't thought about it in exactly those terms until it actually came out of my mouth. And so I was I was as, as struck by it as you were. And I was like, oh, yeah, I think that like that phrasing is is really useful and and I'm definitely going to keep using that when I talk about these things in the future. I think for me, it's it's really about reflecting on what Christina mentioned, you know, about just being happy. Like if you're not happy at work, if you're not happy with what you're doing, you really need to take the time to um, understand your why. So I think for me, my reflection is just, you know, remember my why. And every time I'm feeling kind of disconnected or confused or unhappy um, and potentially facing burnout to just kind of like stop, drop and remember my why. I like that. (laughs) I was, um, I was thinking about Christina's plan to be able to redeploy her business towards, you know, responding to current events and, and so on. And in order to do that, you have to maintain a capacity for maneuver. You can't be so stretched out by all of the work that you're currently doing that you have no room to move. And the challenge here, of course, is that businesses are under constant pressure to not have any slack. And so striking that balance seems to me both really difficult, but also really important and actually keeping track in some way of your capacity for, for maneuver, how much slack you have, not necessarily just in terms of like, utilization of like hours and things like that, but also in terms of how many changes you could make now if you needed to and how many changes you're currently undergoing and things like that. And then for me, I really was intrigued by John, your concept of emotion as like an API. It's a different way of thinking about it for me, because if you think about it, it is very pattern based. It is taking a step back. It can be a level of predictable you know, recognizing those patterns. That's exactly what a software does, right? That's exactly what AI does. And so just thinking about it in that, uh, with that, that spin, I think I'm going to 
really sit on that a little bit more. And I think it's a good way to explain it deeper. Thank you. You're welcome. I'll send you a link to the talk. Yeah, I'd love to see it and hear it. Good work, everyone. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.